And so we've called this series, Jesus is Better, because that's really what the book of Hebrews is about. It's really written to Jewish believers who understood the old covenant, understood the, the temple and the tabernacle and the laws, and they got all that. And then, you know, the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, Jesus is so much better than that old system. And the goal of the writer is to get people to completely abandon the old system and just embrace the new covenant, embrace Jesus and all that he's done and is doing. And so um, I loved hearing last Sunday from Josh about how he's having personal, you know, sort of upgrades in his own revelation of Jesus and focus on Jesus and passion for Jesus. And then I've been having my own, I think I shared with you last week, some breakthroughs personally uh, in my own just walk with God. And um, so it's been really good. How many of you feel like you've had breakthrough this year, just out of curiosity, or even this summer, you've had some sort of breakthrough personally? That's awesome. Well, our prayer is that by the end of the year, everyone's hand is up. So I want everyone to experience breakthrough at some level. And uh, that's why we're going through the book of Hebrews. You know, um, one of the reasons that it's so important to focus on, how many of you are, how many of you are having a renewed relationship with Jesus? So, so Josh is, I am, you guys are, Justin Bieber is. So everybody's, everybody's refocusing on Jesus, which is awesome. Amen. Um, I shared with the early service that uh, I, wa- I please don't judge me. Some of you will want to judge me for this, but I, wa- I sometimes watch UFC, uh, Ultimate Fighting. And, um, and last night was Daniel Cormier and John Jones, the two light heavyweights, uh, champion challenger. And um, the power of watching someone be kind to someone else, you know. It's almost as though John Jones found Jesus again because they had such a bitter rivalry. They were just saying so much smack about each other, and I mean mean, like really nasty type things. And even though John Jones won the fight, when he got done, he just did nothing but was kind to Daniel Cormier and heaped praise on him, and it was just beautiful to behold, you know. The thing about it is, is when your faith in Jesus gets renewed, you become nicer. And if you're not nicer, your faith hasn't been renewed in Jesus. So one of the fruits, right, of getting of refocusing on Jesus is you become like him. And when you become like him, that's a good thing for everybody. Amen? Sometimes my wife is like, you need to spend some time with Jesus. <laughs> you know, anyone ever told you that? You need to be with Jesus. You're, you're kind of you're coming across a little thin on your, on your Jesus uh, character stuff. So I just think it's good. Uh, you know, Revelation 2, Jesus said, that the church in Ephesus, they had left their first love. They'd stopped being in love with Jesus. And you know, he, he gave them the antidote. It was super simple. He said, number one, just remember what it used to be like. Just try to recall to mind, it's, the phrase he uses, he says, remember the height from which you've fallen. So remember the high times. Remember the high points in your relationship with God, what it used to be like when you were close and intimate. And then he says, repent which means turn away from this current course of action and turn back to that high place, turn back to where it was good, you know, and long for that again. Then he says, the third thing is, do what you used to do. Do the deeds you did at first. Like, do what you used to do. Remember how you got there. I remember some of my most intimate times with the Lord as a teenager. I, would, I was just so hungry for God. I would sometimes shut myself in a room for hours with, on my knees with my Bible in front of me, just weeping and with joy in the presence of God. And sometimes I would just climb a mountain or walk in the forest for hours and just talk to God about everything on my heart. And then I would listen for his voice and I would, I would take a little journal and I'd write stuff down. And I just, that, that, those kinds of moments produce such radical intimacy with the Lord. It's not, a, 
It's not a duty, you know, it's a relationship. And so anybody who wants to be close, you got to spend time together. And so I would spend radical time. And sometimes in my life where I've drifted, you know, how many of you know that we can all drift? I have to remember, oh, that's the height from which I've fallen. That's what it used to be like. Repent. I choose that life I used to live than the one I'm living now. And I'm doing the deeds I did at first. And so not that the mechanics of it will get you there, but just choosing again to go after Jesus, choosing again to spend time with him and be alone. It may not be up a mountain this time. It might be uh, snorkeling in the ocean. You know, who knows? But it's, it, the point is, is that I would just take time to be, when you, whenever you need to have your relationship with Jesus renewed, just spend time alone with him. And one of the things I like to say to people is when you, if you don't feel close to the Lord, and you want to be alone with them, and you don't know what to do when you're alone with them, I want to encourage you to ask the Lord this question. How do you feel about me? Now, you may have to wade through some self-doubt and some condemnations, but if you actually wait long enough, you're going to hear, I, I love you, and I, not only I love you, I like you, and I'm so glad that you're here with me. And you're going to hear the love of God begin to pour into your soul. And when that happens, you can't help but be close to him again because we love him because he first loved us. So so I encourage you, you can be alone with the Lord and you can just ask him, how do you? And the reason I think that's important, you're like, feel, what's it matter what God feels? Actually, everything matters. Love isn't just a decision, it's also an emotion. It's all of the above. We sometimes make a decision for love whether we feel anything or not, but if we never feel anything, then our love needs an upgrade, amen? And so what ends up happening is we make those decisions and then we start experiencing the thing that we've decided. And so it goes from duty to delight. Amen? That's what God has for all of us. So anyway, um, you know, I, Josh was talking last week about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and focusing on Jesus and how, you know, I, I loved what he was saying because, you know, how many of you know that the Godhead, the Father, they're not insecure around each other. Like if we focus on Jesus, the Father isn't going, hey, what about me, you know? Or you ever been with friends, you know, you like you focus on one friend and the other one's like, hey, I, what about me, you know, and but the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are not, they're not like that. Like the Father's continually honoring the Son, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit's continually honoring Jesus, Jesus is continually honoring the Father and pointing people to the Holy Spirit, like God is the most honoring community that there is, and I know it's a mystery, you know, three in one, but the triune God, but I love that God lived in community. He lived in family before he ever created us. He wasn't some lonely, solitary being, kind of, you know, old guy with a beard and a cane going, I need some kids, you know, or, or, or whatever. He's actually living in radical community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, loving, honoring, preferring one another, enjoying each other, laughing together. And in that place said, let's create more family. That's where we come into the picture. We were created for relationship. And when we miss that, when we miss the whole aspect of relationship, we become religious because we start thinking it's about doing and rules. We're going to talk about that today. Hebrews 9 is a dismantling of that religious mindset so that we can actually come back into fresh relation. How many of you would like to have a fresher relationship with God right now where you just, you just the rawness of who he is, is you, you experience his closeness and you're, you're not thinking of rules, you're just in love, and you love being loved by him, and it's just, it's this heartfelt, heart-pulsing heart reality that we're called to live in, and uh, that's where God wants us to live. He doesn't want us to live, you know, like, okay, what's rule number 47? I forgot that, you know, uh, 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 
That's not how he wants us to live. That doesn't mean that the Word of God is not important. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the heart of this thing is about relationship. This is a means to an end. He's the end. The Bible's extremely valuable. It's eternal. It's never going to go away. But it's a means to a person. The Bible says in John 5 that the, the Pharisees were searching the Scriptures. They were doing all kinds of Bible study, but they missed the person. They missed Him. How can it be that in churches all across the world we preach, 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 talk, 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 and people miss God? They miss the very God that we're talking about and studying. Like this whole thing is about a heart-pounding relationship with a God who's crazy about you and who just wants you to understand how crazy he is about you because if you do, to know him is to love him and to love him is to serve him. His goal isn't to get you to serve him. His goal is that you would know him because when you know him, you're going to love him. And when you love him, you will serve him, but it'll be out of, it'll be out of the overflow of that love. That's, all, that's what he wants. He's not after servants. He's after friends. He's after relationship with us. He's already secure. God is already secure. And I actually believe, I've said this many times, I actually believe that when you get saved, God takes you, you're, you know, the Bible says that we're without hope and without God in the world. So we're all by ourselves, even if we have people around us. We're just this lonely little person. And he takes us and he places us in the community of the Trinity. We are surrounded by the love that exists between Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And he places us right in the middle. And his whole goal is that we become healed in his love until we finally can relate to him. I love what John uh, Arnett used to say that uh, he called it the, the modified Cinderella story. How many of you know that the Cinderella story is an amazing story about Jesus and the church? Jesus and his bride, you know, that, that, uh, that we're, we're this broken, we're beautiful but broken, right? We're beautiful but we have a, a stepmother that doesn't love us and we have stepsisters that are jealous of us and we grew up in dysfunctional families. And so we have abuse and we have trauma and we have all this stuff. But inside we know that we're beautiful and valuable and worth something, but we're having a hard time experiencing that. And suddenly Jesus, the prince, Jesus comes along and we dance with him. We find out, wow, there's a lover of my soul. There's somebody who's in love with me. And all we want to do is, be, is escape from our dysfunctional world and find Jesus. And so Jesus comes to our house and the slipper fits and he takes us and he carries us off into the sunset and we live happily ever after, except there's a problem. While we were living in stepmother's house, we got scarred and wounded and broken and messed up and we didn't realize how messed up we are. In fact, we're so messed up that Jesus knows something that we don't know. He knows that if he rides off into the sunset with us in our current broken state, we'll never <clears throat> be able to love him. We'll, we'll always have a broken version of love, a dysfunctional, codependent, unhealthy version of love. So here's what he does. <clears throat> he takes us on his horse to the Father's house. And he says, hey, let's live here for a while. <clears throat> let's live in Dad's house. And what happens is we, we start finding out what love actually looks like. We start finding out what functional family looks like. And we start becoming whole. And then we can ride off into the sunset with Jesus and become his bride. That's what the Father's love does. It actually heals us enough to be able to be in love with Jesus. Religion is trying to do the exact opposite. Religion is trying to sow insecurity insignificance, failure into our lives so that we push away from God and never get close to him and stay in our pain and dysfunction and brokenness and never get healed. That's the danger of religion. That's why looking at things like Hebrews 9 is so important because we need to understand the difference between religion and actual real relationship with God. 
Is anybody hearing me? All right, so we're going to read Hebrews chapter 9. Before we do, if you want to just take your Bible and hold it up, we're going to make a declaration. Let's, uh, let's say this together, beloved. Ready? Father, we celebrate your son, Jesus. We recognize that Jesus is better than everything and everyone else. Would you reveal Jesus today more and more through your word and by your spirit? In Jesus' mighty name, amen. All right, we're going to make three points or so, maybe, maybe more than three, and we're going to build the first two out of this first half of the chapter, then we're going to read the second half of the chapter. Lord willing, we'll just do the next, the final point. Okay, you guys good? All right, so verses 1 through 14, let's read this together. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna. That was a, that was a memorabilia, as it were, of, of God providing manna in the wilderness. So they put, they put a jar of manna, and it was preserved. It never rotted. It, got, it went into a jar, and it was preserved by the presence of God for all time so people could remember that they were fed by God in the wilderness, okay? Aaron's rod, which budded, if you remember, uh, which was actually Moses' staff, became Aaron's rod. The tables of the covenant above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. I just think that's hilarious because he's, uh, that's a lot of detail already. He's like, we can't even go into that. I'm, all, I'm already lost. And he's already like, what do you mean detail? Anyway, now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing which is a symbol for the present time. Now, bear with me. We're going to unpack some of this today. We're going to unpack some big words and some big concepts. So just let's just read this through. Even if you're not quite with it, just stay with me, okay? Uh, which is a symbol, verse 9, for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, obtaining re eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Whew, that's a mouthful right there. All right. If you're confused, we're going to unconfuse you, all right? So what I want to do is I want to first of all talk to you about mediator. The word mediation is, or mediator is mentioned a few times. And the first point is this, that Jesus is our mediator, Okay. Now, to talk about what that means, we need to talk about the word mediator, all right? So we're going to define it. You guys okay? You good so far? Yeah. I remember when I was um, working in Guadalupe as a teacher, I um, ended up becoming the president of the Teachers Association. So I was the 
I was the GTA president. And then uh, I remember we had to negotiate for salaries. Uh, but the good news was I happened to be friends with the superintendent. So the superintendent and I got together with some other people and we worked it out, right? So we didn't need a mediator because we were able to work it out. But sometimes the relationship gets so adversarial and there's so much hatred, hurt, misunderstanding, anger, that people can't even talk. So they need a mediator, right? How many of you, by the way, have experienced a, you've worked with a mediator, done mediation, any of those things? I'm just curious. I'm not going to call on you. I just want to see, okay, about the same as first service. So, so many of you have experienced mediation. Uh, it, it, it happens in different realms. The dictionary definition of mediator is a neutral third person who settles disputes between parties at odds using special communication and bargaining techniques. A mediator's goal is to bring about an agreement or truce or peace by acting as an intermediary, a.k.a. a go-between, trying to remove misunderstanding and reach compromise. If an arrangement is reached, especially when it has to do with money, it is often confidential. Now, I just want to say that that definition is perfect for the world. It's not at all what the Bible means by mediator, okay? So we're looking at Hebrews 9. We're not talking about a worldly mediator. The actual Greek word is mesitos, and the Greek uh, um, root word is mesos, and it means one who goes between bringing two into one so they can move forward. One who goes in between bringing two into one so they can move forward, okay? You guys all right? Now, that may sound like a worldly mediator, but it's not. Um, In the world's definition, there are many mediators. I looked up the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, the other day and found out there's about 9,000 or so professional mediators, arbitrators, uh, conciliators in the United States. Obviously, there are many other countries. So there's quite a few professional mediators that get paid and as you know, that those of you that have been through it, they operate in several categories. They operate a lot in family, uh, prenuptial agreements, divorce, alimony, uh, custody, estates, end of life, that kind of stuff. They operate in work where there's wrongful termination situations, uh, workers' comp, discrimination. They op- op- operate sometimes in landlord-tenant disputes, contractual disputes, uh, medical business partner- partnerships, School, nonprofits, land disputes, that kind of stuff. So mediators are used in a lot of different ways, uh, and there's a lot of them. But biblically speaking, now, by the way, the Bible recognizes this kind of mediation. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, if you'll recall, the Corinthian church, they're always in trouble, those Corinthians. But anyway, the Corinthian church, Paul has to say to them, hey, guys, I realize you have a dispute, but why can't you bring it before the church and somebody in the church has enough wisdom to mediate the situation? Why do you have to sue each other? You're brothers in Christ. Now, I'm not, if you've sued a brother in Christ, I'm not condemning you. I'm just telling you the preferred method, according to the scripture, is that you wouldn't have to sue each other as brothers and sisters, but you'd work it out. Somebody in the church is wise enough to actually say, operate as a mediator. So this idea of mediation is not bad. But when it comes to Hebrews 9, when it comes to what God is talking about in Hebrews 9, it's a completely different understanding of mediator. Jesus is mediator, okay? So let me just read you a couple of scriptures. 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6. God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved. Amen? There's one God, and there's one mediator between God and man, God and humankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom, 
with his testimony at the proper time. So 1 Timothy 2 says there's not 9,000, there's one mediator given one time. He operates once for everybody. He's the one mediator for all of humanity, okay? That's a big difference between the worldly mediators and Jesus' mediator. Number two, Galatians 3.20 says this, Now a mediator is not just for one party, but in this case, the mediator is on behalf of just one party. This is what I want you to hear. This is very important. Now think with me. Put on your thinking caps. Jesus is the mediator between who? Between God and us. Right? We good? All right. So he's going to mediate a disagreement, something, some schism, right? There's some schism between us and God called sin, right? And he's going to deal with it. He's going to mediate it to a proper conclusion. He's not going to do it through compromise, by the way, because here's the problem. When he arbitrates the situation, one of the parties is AWOL. Can you guess who it is? It's us. Here's what the Bible says, Ephesians 2. It says, we were dead in trespasses and sins. So how many of you know that dead people can't show up at mediation? They might be talked about at mediation, but they can't show up personally themselves because they're dead, so they can't come. So we did not show up at the mediation table, number one. Number two, here's what it says uh, about us in Colossians 1. It says, you were formerly alienated and hostile in your mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet now he has reconciled you. So in other words, not only were we dead, but we were angry. So humanity is they couldn't show up at the mediation table because they're dead, and they wouldn't show up at the mediation table because they're angry. They're hostile. God's not hostile. God's there. God shows up at the mediation table, and we, won't, we can't come, and we won't come. We won't show up. We're not coming to the mediation table. You guys with me so far? All right. So not only that, uh, Romans 7 says that we sold ourselves into bondage, the bondage of sin. So we're prisoners of sin. We can't show up at the mediation table because we're dead, we're angry, and we have handcuffs on, and we're tied up in a cell. And that cell is the cell of sin. So we have no ability to make it to the mediation table. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're dead, we're angry, and we're enslaved, okay? And I love the word redeemed. I love the word redeemed because the Bible says we sold ourselves into slavery. We sold ourselves into slavery through sin. So redeem means to buy back, but what God did is he bought back something which he never sold. What we did is we walked ourselves down to the pawn shop of sin and said, have us. We'll take freedom, we'll take our own life, and the cost is us. You can have us, devil. You can have us, and that way I get to sin and do what I want. So we sold ourselves into the pawn shop of sin. So God redeems that which he never sold. He buys back that which he never sold. Isn't that amazing? You ever had to buy something back at a pawn shop that you sold or somebody sold out from under you? It's not a pleasant deal because you have to pay a lot more money than what you got for it, what, you, what they gave you originally. But we didn't, God didn't sell us into the pawn shop. We sold ourselves through sin. So we're in a bad way. So here's the thing that you need to understand. There's only one mediator because there's only one being in the universe that could sit at both sides of the table, Jesus. So Jesus sits on the one side of the table representing God, and then he takes on human flesh and sits on the other side of the table representing humanity. 
So he negotiated, if you will, a new covenant on our behalf without us even being present, and he did all the work, and he did it for our benefit. He slanted the whole thing in our favor. It's called the gospel. He made it so good that people can't even believe how good it is. And he's the only one qualified to do it. Because he had, it had to be a human on the other side of the table, but he had to be God so he could understand God's best interest as well. So the, it's, the Bible says there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, the man, God, the God-man, the God in a bod. Only Jesus could sit on both sides of the table. Do you understand what I'm saying? He mediated our future for us, all right? Very, very important that we understand that. Now, number two, can we move on? All right, let's move on. Number two, Jesus, our mediator, entered a better tabernacle. So this mediation occurred in a setting. How many of you know settings matter? Situations, context, they matter. It matters what, where something happened. And so this mediation took place in a tabernacle. In the old covenant, there was a tabernacle. And then the, and under this new, new mediation, this new covenant, it's another tabernacle, okay? And so I'm going to show you another table. There's going to be three tables today. You guys okay with tables? All right, good. Glad you said yes. All right, so this, uh, I'm using sanctuary and tabernacle, a little bit interchangeable. But how many know that this, the, the tabernacle was basically a pop-up temple? You guys got that? It's a mobile temple. So Moses went to the mountain. He got instructions to build the temple, but he also got instructions to build the tabernacle, right? The tabernacle, actually David, yeah. So, so, he got in, so the tabernacle is a rod and curtain version of the temple. So it's got this outside wall, which is actually just, you know, silk and uh, purple and gold linen. And, uh, and it's, you know, it goes outside. And then you've got this, you go inside of it. It's got this next area called the holy place. And then you, and there's another curtain, and you go inside of that, and it's called the Holy of Holies, okay? So inside the holy place, you remember there was some stuff there. There was the, the bread, uh, and there was uh, the table, and so on and so forth. And in fact, I think it says, does it say it up there? Yeah. So you got the outer, the holy place, and the Holy of Holies. And it's got a lampstand, table, bread, and altar, Incense, ark, manna, rod, table. So that b bottom line, most of that bottom line is in the Holy of Holies, and most of the top line is in the, is in the holy place, the, this sort of area number one, we'll call it, okay? And so what we've got is we've got the Lord, the only one qualified, and he does business in a different sanctuary, a better sanctuary, a better tabernacle, because the tabernacle that Moses built was made by human hands. It was imperfect. All right, you guys okay? It's construction by man. The heavenly tabernacle, the heavenly sanctuary was not made by human hands. It was made by God. It's, it's called heaven, all right? So Jesus mediates our future in heaven. You guys with me so far? I know he accomplished it on the earth, but he mediates it in heaven, all right? And in the human tabernacle, there's these veils, there's these curtains. You remember what happened when Jesus died? It says the veil was torn, right? The veil in the temple was torn. That means that the separation between us and the Holy of Holies was actually removed. That means we have instant access and full intimacy with God himself. Accomplished by Jesus, which is incredible. 
Now the article or the worship, excuse me, was filled with all kinds of regulations. Why? Because there's articles that you have to treat a certain way. You have to wash them a certain way and handle them a certain way because there's offerings and sacrifices and gifts that have to be done a certain way. And so there's lots and lots of regulations. I mean, you think that uh, the health care bill has a lot of regulations. Try the temple. Try the tabernacle. The rules are so incredible. There's like a rule book that's super thick. It's 600 and some commands. It's crazy the number of commands that there are, the regulation of worship. Now, I just want to tell you this. The more rules there are, the more self-conscious we are. Here's why. If, uh, David, if I say, hey, let's, let's agree on three rules. Uh, show up on time, do a good job, and then leave on time. You could write those on your hand and probably have them memorized in a couple of days and never forget them, right? I said, if he said, hey, what, what are Mark's rules? Well, he wants me to show up on time, do a good job, and leave on time. He can handle that. So he can work not conscious of the rules, right? But what if I had him a rule book with 6,000 regulations in it? He's going to be, what does it produce? It produces insecurity because he's like home, tried to study it, memorize it. I, I don't know if I got it right. Did I break a rule? So I'm looking at him like this. He's like, I must have broken a rule. I must have not honored one of the... The regulations, you know, so he's constantly self-conscious. See, the law makes you self-conscious because the law is all about what you missed. The purpose of the law is not to make you a failure. It's to make you aware that you already failed. Why? Why would God want you to be in touch with that? So that you realize you don't need to be your own savior. Because if you can't keep all the commands, the Bible says you're guilty of all. If you miss one, you're guilty of all of them. Why would the Lord say that to you? Is he trying to beat you up? No, he's trying to free you from the need to be your own savior so that you'll realize, I can't, there's no way I can save myself. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I can't do it. I'm not, I cannot keep this manual. I'm not able to do it. I need help. I need a savior. I need somebody to go into the bargaining table and work out a deal that I can actually live with because this one's not working. This law thing is not working for me. I don't know how to keep it. I don't know how to do it. I feel like a failure all the time. I'm self-conscious. You guys tracking? Jesus, is he, he creates a better covenant, which we'll get to in a minute, in a better setting, in a better tabernacle, okay? So there's all these articles that you have to take care of and, and manage and deal with and set up properly. In the heavenly tabernacle, there's none. There's no articles. There's no nothing. There's no rituals. There's not a single thing, all right? No regulations. The priests were many, by the way. There's many priests. There's a high priest, but there's also several smaller priests. And they went into, in and out of the outer courts continually. They're always going into the holy place, taking care of business, burning turtle doves, doing all, making offerings, barbecuing, all kinds of stuff, right, to make sacrifice for the people. And it's an exhausting process for them, and it's an exhausting process for the people. Can you imagine some of you who aren't perfect? Is, are there any not pe- perfect people in here? Now, there's some of you that would, you're really good fakers, so everyone would think you're super holy. But then Jesus came along and said, actually, if you, if you even have it in your heart, uh, you're guilty. So he, he messed the whole thing up. But anyway, but a, a lot of us could, could fake our way through parts of the Old Testament because we just pretend and lie and, you know, hide, and we become really good at that. But some of us, can you imagine some of us that aren't so good at hiding and you kind of maybe you have a bad temper or you, you, you know, you're like a bull in a china shop and you make mistakes and you run over things. And you, can't you imagine like you just went to the temple, you just went to the tabernacle and the priest went in and offered two turtle doves, a half a goat and three sheep. And you're like, awesome, I'm good. That should last me for quite a while. Somebody comes up to you, bumps into you and you, you cuss at him. And you're, oh, no. Got to go back to the tabernacle. Um, 
oh, oh, I forgot, I can't go to the tower. I've got to go buy some more turtle doves. Go to the marketplace, get the turtle doves, then come back to the Okay, could you offer these? I just messed up again. Uh, I don't have time right now. You don't have time right now. Go get some more turtle doves. I mean, your life would be miserable. <laughs> that's your life. That's your life. I'm saying this because that's how most Christians live. Most Christians live with the idea that that's what God's looking for. He wants you to be filled with anxiety, full of all kinds of rules, constantly insecure, always trying to make things right. That's how most Christians live under the law, trying to work life out in an earthly tabernacle. That's why we're talking about this, okay? So, and then the high priest would go into, remember, he'd go in once a year for the, the big one. He, he, the, so the priests are going in all the time, but then the high priest would go in once a year to the Holy of Holies, and they had to tie a rope around his ankle and put a bell on it in case, in case he died because he hadn't dealt with his own sin. He would die in the presence of God, and they'd have to pull him out with a rope because they didn't want to go in and get him because then they would die because God's so holy. And you're like, well, that's mean of God. No, no, it's not him. Be, it's just him being himself. He's so holy, you can't be in his presence unless you're perfect. How are we going to get there? That's why we need a mediator, because we can't do it ourselves. You guys tracking? So what's the outcome? The outcome is that we have a relationship with God based on fulfilling obligations, outward regulations. We can nev- the Bible says we can never have perfect worship in that situation, so we're always insecure, and it's always the same. Fear, dread, and monotony. Your life is monotonous. You're just, you're always, if, if, if there's anything that the law produces, it's sin consciousness. Because all you can think about is try not to sin. And how many of you know when you try to focus on not doing something, you end up doing it, right? It's, it's, it's a terrible system. The Bible says in Galatians, it was a tutor to point us to Christ. It was the whole purpose of the law. So we just go, like David is so amazing, Psalm 51. He's like, sacrifices and burnt offerings you've not desired. Even though the law requires them, I know that's not what you're really after. I know that the law thing is not your heart. See, David was a man after God's own heart because he looked past the outward stuff and he saw God's heart. He goes, God, I know this isn't what you're about. I know this isn't you. I know you've set up a system that we can't possibly do on purpose to get us to look to you. Sacrifices and burnt offering you've not desired, but a broken and contrite spirit you will not despise, David said. He got it. He's like, you're after my heart. You want my heart on the altar, not the you're not just looking for continual turtle. That isn't what's pleasing you. You know, ooh, the smell of barbecue again. No, no, you want me, a living sacrifice, Romans 12, right? A living sacrifice. You're looking for me to be the sacrifice, not to burn up, but to live as a sacrifice before you because Jesus already paid for everything. I can lay my life down. Hello? So instead, Jesus goes into the heavenly sanctuary. He offers his own blood one time for all, And he offers us a clean conscience. This is super important. A clean conscience with which to serve God. So under the law, you never really knew if your conscience was clean because you had the sins committed in ignorance and you had an imperfect system. So you never quite know if you're clean or not. You're hoping you are. I did everything I know how to do, but what if I committed a sin I wasn't aware of? What if there's an unconscious sin? What if I'm, having, I'm in sin, but I'm not aware of it, and God hasn't told me? I mean, it's constant, constant insecurity. So the Bible says that Jesus died once for all to give us a clean conscience so we don't have to wonder, so we can actually have right standing before God. We can know with 100% certainty that we're righteous before God. How many of you know 
that you are either righteous before God or you're not. And if you're wondering about it, you're probably relying on you. Because the only way you'll be righteous before God is because of him. It's not going to be because of you. Because if you have to figure out if you are righteous or not, you're going to live in insecurity, you're going to be a slave to the law, and you're going to end up hating God. No one can serve a God like that long term. It just doesn't work. So we're not talking about, beloved, a high priest who's angry, hurt, wringing his hands, tired, beaten down, worn out, tired of going to the altar for you. We're talking about a victorious warrior who sings over you with joy and who shouts over you because he could say, it is finished. I did it. I accomplished the whole deal. It's done. I already paid for everything. I already accomplished everything. Okay? You guys all right? All right. We're going to read the rest of the chapter real quick. You guys got a few more minutes with me? We're going to finish up here. Your head's not going to, if your head is hurting now, it's not going to hurt in a minute. So just stay with me. All right. Let's read verses from verse 15. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Everyone say new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. Think of a will. That's what it's sort of talking about. If there's a will, I know there's something called living will, but if you just bear with me, the old-fashioned will, it didn't happen until the person died. When the person died, the will was enacted and things were, that's what it's talking about when it talks about this kind of covenant, okay? For a covenant is valid, at verse 17, only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop. Hyssop was a branch and scarlet wool. It just means that's how they spread the blood. They took it. They took the blood, water, uh, some steel wool, some hyssop, and they kind of. That's how they spread it on stuff. Okay, not steel wool, but you know what I'm saying. All right, you guys, all right? You good? All right, good. You got to pay attention to this one. And then verse 20, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. In the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. So the priest is trying to make everything clean. He's sprinkling the tabernacle, the cloth, the, the rings, the, and he's also all the articles. He's trying to get sprinkle the blood on everything, make sure everything's consecrated, right? It's an exhausting and smelly situation, all right? It is. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses, okay, so sorry, verse 21, in the same way he sprinkled both the tabernacle, uh, verse 22, according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Verse 23, therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. In other words, that sounds like mumbo jumbo. What it's saying is all those articles in the tabernacle were cleansed with blood and water and hyssop and wool and all that stuff, so they were, had a certain methodology to cleanse it. There's a better way to cleanse things in the heaven. That's all it's saying. The heavenly tabernacle has a better way to cleanse things. It's Jesus, of course, okay? For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, verse 24, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest 
enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would need to to suffer often since the foundation of the world. In other words, he would have had to have been crucified over and over and over if it was like the old system. But he's a new mediator with a new covenant, a new tabernacle. Everything's new, all right? You guys all right? Now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so, so if you could picture it like this, here's God on one side of the mediation table. Here's Jesus on the other side of the mediation table, God, representing humanity. And it is agreed between them that the only way that humanity is going to have any access to God and any forgiveness, is somebody's going to have to die. Because the system of bloods and bull and goats is not working, so it needs to be blood that's perfect from a human being. Somebody's going to have to die, but there's only one person that's worthy to die, and it's God himself. It's Jesus Christ, right? So the agreement between father and son is, you're going to have to die, and not only that, I'm going to have to separate myself from you. So what's going to happen is, at a certain point when you're on the cross, I'm actually going to stop. We're going to disconnect, as it were. Like, you're going to be on your own representing humanity. Because, in, see, in the Old Testament, they had something called a scapegoat. They would lay hands on the goat and pat its butt, and it would, there, there was two different goats. One would, they would sacrifice. The other one they would send off away from the village, and that represented the scapegoat. So all the sin of the village was put on that goat. And that goat represented, it had to go away, right? So Jesus is the scapegoat of the entire world of all time. So the sin, past, present, future of all of humanity is put on him at the cross. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, He who knew no sin, never sinned, didn't know sin, wasn't familiar with sin, didn't have the smell of sin on him. He who knew no sin was made to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. He knew no sin. He had no sin. He hadn't sinned. Nothing to do with sin. He became sin for us, which is why he said in the garden, if there's any way possible, Father, let this cup pass from me. It wasn't the cup of going to the cross. He was glad to do that. He's like, yeah, I can take some whippings and get some nails through. That's fine. What I don't want, Father, there has to be another way. I don't want to be separated from you because it had never occurred in the history of the universe because God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, always living in community, in family. Suddenly, the second member of the Trinity is cut off for a moment in time so that he could become sin on our behalf. Are you listening? This is amazing, amazing, amazing stuff. That's why the Bible says in the garden he was sweating as though great drops of blood. It was unfair fathomable he was thinking about realities that had never happened in the universe never happened in the history of of all time in all of eternity he was considering the reality that he was going to be separated from his own father he was going to be separated from the godhead for a moment in time that he might become our sin he might become sin he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we Can you imagine the pain in God's heart after Jesus went through all of that, that we would not become the righteousness of God in Christ? Can you imagine the pain in God's heart to watch his church suffer under the law, constantly flagellating itself, not becoming righteous, not knowing what righteousness is, not knowing how to be righteous before God, just trying to earn it, trying to do laws, having begun in the spirit, trying to be made perfect in the flesh. Can you imagine the pain? I went to the cross. I became sin. I wept. I sweat great drops of blood. It was horrifying. I did all that so they would become the righteousness of God. But they're still living in condemnation and shame under the law. Can you imagine how God would feel about it? It'd be like, as though we didn't honor his sacrifice. 
For you and I to live under the law is the most dishonoring thing to the sacrifice of Jesus because it's saying, even though you did all of that, I refuse to become your righteousness. I will do it on my own, which, of course, it never can happen. We're not talking right now about no consequence for sin. That's not what we're talking. We're talking about the church realizing who we are in God. We're not talking about some flimsy, uh, greasy, gray, sloppy, agape gospel. We're talking about the actual gospel. We're talking about the actual thing that Jesus accomplished so that we could become something that we're not apart from him. You're either righteous or you're not. Do you understand, beloved? And if you're not righteous, you'll never be righteous. And if you are righteous, it's only because of another person. It's not because of you or you or me. You're not good enough. You don't pray enough. You're not cool enough. You're not holy enough. You're not... You're not worshiping enough to, for you to be fully righteous on your own. It ain't going to happen. I don't mean by that to imply that sin doesn't matter. That's not the point. The point is you have to know that you're not your own savior. You have to know that you must have a mediator. You are not allowed to sit on the other side of the table because the deal's already been done. There's no new negotiation with God. He negotiated the deal all by himself. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews, it's crazy. It says, he could find no one greater to ratify the covenant. We're going to talk about the covenant in just a second. Than himself, so he swore by himself. He actually swore an oath. He swore the covenant into being by, I, God, hereby swear by God, me, that this covenant is true and real and I'm going to keep it. That's how he did it. He said, there's no one more honest and real than me, so I'm going to swear by myself. That's actually what the Bible teaches. He swore the, uh, the covenant into reality by himself. We had no part in it. We couldn't do a single thing. We were dead in trespasses and sins, hostile toward God, without hope and without God in the world. And while we were yet sinners, Christ, God so loved the world that Christ died for us and he accomplished all of it. So how is it that we think that somehow we're going to add to salvation? We're gonna, it's going to be Jesus plus some of my good works, Jesus plus my preaching, Jesus plus my serving, my worship leading. It's none of it. It doesn't amount to anything. That's all an expression of gratitude after we understand salvation. That's all comes out of the overflow of a life that's been saved, that's been redeemed by a glorious God who loves us and who was on both sides of the mediation table on our behalf, who negotiated the most amazing deal called the gospel for us, which we had no part in. We were not worthy even to sit at the table, but God did it anyway because he loves us. He so loves us that he did it without us. Hello? So let's, let's just look at the third point. Jesus, our mediator, entered a better covenant. Okay? We're going to look at this last table real quickly. All right. So the old first covenant, the definition is that now, can I just tell you this? Listen, the old covenant was a lot like a contract. Some of you say, no, no, a covenant and a contract. In the Old Testament, it was a lot like a contract. It was God's part, our part. You do your part, God will do his part. God will do his part, you do your part. You read Deuteronomy 28 if you don't believe me. If you do this, 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 all these blessings will follow you. If you do this, 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 all these curses will follow you. You do this, bless. You do this, cursed. You think, well, isn't that still true? It is still true in terms of consequence, in terms of reaping and sowing but not in terms of salvation. It's very, very important that you understand this. So under the old covenant, a covenant based on law, what you did, what God did, it was almost contractual in nature. Now, that's not God's heart. Hear me. I'm talking about the actual covenant. All right? 
Lots of if-then propositions. Whereas in the new covenant, it's a unilateral covenant. That means that God, as I've been trying to say, God did it. God created it. God designed it. He wrote the blueprint for it. And then he fulfilled it all. He did the whole thing. It's a unilateral covenant. It's not based on you. Let me ask you a question. If the covenant is not, was not based on you, can you wreck it? You can't wreck the covenant that you didn't create. You can only wreck the contract that you were a part of. If, if I have a contract with you and you have to uh, earn $3,000 and I have to earn $3,000 and you don't earn your $3,000, we can go to law, we can have mitigation, we can have a negotiator, we can have a mediator, and we can end up not partners, right? That's because it depends on us. But God wrote this covenant himself. He did everything. He provided everything. He paid every price. He did the whole thing. God so loved the world, he gave his son. All we have to do is believe and receive. That's why the Bible says the people that reign in life, Romans 5, 17, the one who receives the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, they're the ones that reign. The ones that are still trying to fulfill it, do good enough, get God to like them, God, are you impressed with me now? Those are orphans in living in the house of God, acting as though they're orphans. They're still God's children, but they're living as though they're off in a corner feeling sad because they think they're still orphans. God's like, no, no, come eat at the table. No, you don't really mean that. Yeah, no, I really do mean it. Come eat at the table. No, you don't really love me. No, I actually really do love you. I've, I've demonstrated the whole thing. I, I did the whole thing all by myself. You had nothing to do with it. I had nothing to do with it. That's not very nice. No, that's actually really nice because you're free from performance. Well, I want to do something. Nope, you don't have to do anything. Just believe. Just actually receive it. Receive what I've provided for you. Well, what happens if I receive it? Well, you'll be transformed from the inside out because you have so much gratitude. You'll have so much life pulsating inside of you that you'll want to serve me. Instead of doing it out of duty, you'll do it out of delight. Instead of doing it out of I should and I ought, you'll do it I want. You'll become a different person on the inside because you will understand my heart. You'll get me that I actually love you. Deuteronomy 7 says that God picked Israel because of nothing. It says, God, you, know how, you know God's great plan? He randomly, if you will, bear, bear with me. I mean, he's smart, so he wasn't random. But in, in terms of how we would categorize it, he randomly picked Abraham. Because the Bible says God didn't put his love on Israel because they were greater in numbers, because they were actually fewer. Not because they were special. It actually uses circular reasoning. It says because the Lord loved you, he loved you. It uses circular reasoning. In other words, there's not a single reason why God picked Abraham. He just picked him and said, I like this guy. I'm going to love on him. He picked Israel to say, I'm going to take a country. I'm going to take a people, and I'm going to show them so much love that the other nations will get jealous. I'm going to love on them so much, they're going to have such blessing that the other nations will go, I want in because my heart is to save the whole world. So my strategy is do it with one. Everyone else will come. It's a come ye strategy. That's why the scriptures talk about the house of prayer. People think it's a, it's a uh, monastic building. That has nothing to do with that. It's actually an evangelistic place where the people, the nations come to the temple and they see the people of God worshiping. They say, I want in. That's why it says, I will make them, the foreigners, joyful in my house of prayer. They're going to be able to seek me too. They're going to find me alongside of you, Israel, because I want the whole world to get saved. But it's a come ye strategy. Jesus turns the whole thing on its head and he makes it a go-ye strategy. He says, how about if I just save you, fill you with my spirit, I'll make you my mobile temple, my mobile sanctuary, my mobile tabernacle. You got everything inside of you, all the, you got everything you need, now go. Go and bring the gospel, bring the kingdom. The kingdom of God is among you, within you, around you. Go, I'm with you. 
go make disciples. Go tell people about me. Go get excited, guys, because I just equipped you with everything you need. Death had to be requ- was required in the Old Covenant. Death was required in the New Covenant. That's one of the stipulations of covenant, right? Blood had to be shed. In the Old Covenant, it was the sprinkling of animal blood on articles, tablets. Forgiveness occurred till the next defilement, as we said. So you were good as long as you didn't mess up again. As soon as you messed up, where do you stand? Where do you stand with God in the Old Covenant between the time that you just got forgiven and the time you still have to be forgiven? Pretty insecure, huh? So what do you do when you just had the turtle dove sacrifice for you and you go and you make a mistake, you snap at someone, you, you know, steal from whatever you do, and then you haven't had the new turtle dove sacrificed yet. Where do you stand with God? Pretty insecure place, isn't it? The new covenant's supposed to do away with that. Where do most Christians live? Insecure between sin. Hmm, did God, am I still saved? I, I, I was saved because God forgave all my sins from the past till I received Christ, but... I, I just sinned, so maybe I'm not saved till I ask forgiveness. If I ask forgiveness, I, it's the most complicated version of the law that I've ever seen that the church lives in. We live in this complicated version where we don't even understand forgiveness. We have no idea how good the gospel is. I'm not talking about universalism. I'm not talking about a cheap grace. I'm not talking about sloppy agape. I'm talking about the gospel is so good that most Christians have no clue how good it is. Romans 5 Paul preaches the actual gospel. You should read it. Having then been therefore justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You should memorize some scripture. You should know these scriptures. Seriously, beloved, not should and shame. Know it because it's life. Jesus said, the words I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. You've got to know the gospel, right? Read Romans 5. It's the gospel. The gospel is preached in Romans 5. It ends. You get to Romans 6 and Paul's like, now let me see. I know there's going to be some questions. Um, and they're going to be, I'll tell you what kind of questions are, they're going to be too good to be true questions. Wait, are you saying that every time we sin, grace abounds? So should we sin so grace abounds? You know what Paul's answer was? It had not an ounce of threat in it. He didn't say you should not sin because God's going to get you. That's not his answer. His answer was identity. He said, do you not know whose you are? Do you, do you not know that when you got saved, you got fundamentally changed from the realm of kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son that you were out now you're in you had no family now you have a family he's your god he's your father you're a son you don't have to act like that yours you were a slave to sin let's give you credit you had to sin because you had no other nature now you're a quote-unquote slave to righteousness like you have a whole new nature like you can't do bad you want to do good you're a different person you're not yin and yang you're not the flesh dog and the spirit dog you're a new person this is what paul's pleading with them to understand he doesn't threaten them with the fear of punishment. 1 John 3 says fear involves punishment. Most of the church uses punishment to get people in line. We think we're going to produce a better church by threatening people with punishment. I want to tell you something. It doesn't work. I'm not saying there aren't consequences. I'm not saying there isn't discipline. There's all of those. And there's, and there's sowing and re- All of those things are true. God isn't trying to get us in line through the fear of punishment. He's trying to get us in line by helping us understand who we actually are through identity. You've been fundamentally changed. Do you not know who you are? Romans, uh, Ephesians 5, you are light in the Lord. You actually are light. You are a light set on a hill. You're not trying to become light. You are light. Now act like who you are. Don't hide your light under a bushel because you are light 
See, we're like, do I even have light? He's like, no, no, you are light. You're the light of the world. What did Jesus say? He said, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Then what did he say to his disciples? You're the light of the world. You know what he wants us to believe? That we're the light of the world. That's not arrogance. It's barely even confidence. It's just identity. It's just believing what God says about us. You are light in the Lord. Now walk as children of the light. Be who you are. Be who you, it's the constant cry of the New Testament. Just be who you are. Just believe who you are and be who you are. Reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God because that's who you are. You're actually, sin has no power over you. Did you know that you can leave this building and never sin again? Did you know that if you're a Christian? If you're not a Christian, you need to get saved and give your heart to Jesus so you can enter into this amazing life. But if you're not, if you're a Christian today, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You have Jesus paid for you to have a whole new nature. You don't ever have to sin again. You do not, if you don't believe that, you'll sin. If you don't understand who you are and whose you are, you live in insecurity, which is a lot like coming under the law. So the covenant that we're under, it was, the old ones enacted in a temporary cloth structure. This covenant was ratified in heaven, in God's very presence. Jesus is the only sacrifice once forever. And the amazing thing is this. this is, now, this is amazing. Just think about this. It says, see the last word? It says, end of life. If you live under the law, this is what's amazing about this. I can't believe this, but it's amazing. If you live under a life, if you live a lifetime of the law, when you get done with your life, here's what you have to look forward to. Judgment. You're like, well, doesn't the Christian have judgment? Not in the same way. There is a judge. There is, y- your, your works will be judged for sure. That's true. But it's not the same thing. The first words out of God's mouth for the unbeliever are, okay, let's, let's take a look. It's time to judge. You rejected grace. You rejected mercy. So let's just go ahead and go with your life. Let's go with your version of reality. Let's see how you did. Scales of justice come out. Let's put all your good. All your, let's see how you did. So just, you, you have judgment. But for the believer, the first words out of God's mouth are joy. Welcome home, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. It's joy. Hebrews, I think it's 12 or 13, I don't know which, I think 13, says that Mount Sinai was this fearful, dark mountain, right? But the mountain we're going to, Mount Zion, is full of joy. It's called the joyful assembly of the saints. The opening, the the welcoming arms of God in heaven are joy. Come on in. You're thinking, people, most Christians are afraid to go to heaven. Do you know why? Because we're under the law. Because we think God's using the scales of justice. Listen, if he used the scales of justice, you can't get in. You think you can get in with the scales of justice? You can't even enter heaven. You can't even get in. The only way into heaven is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if you have it, you're fully righteous. That's the thing that you don't understand. That we would be made the right, so we've been reckoned righteous and we've been made righteous. We're walking out, we're becoming who we actually are. He says who we are and then we're becoming that. So we're learning how to be righteous in our behavior in the same way that we are in our identity. We're learning how to be who we are. That's the Christian life. Sanctification is the process of learning how to be who we are. It's learn how to walk out of a new identity. 
It's learn how to believe what God says about us and nobody else. As Bill Johnson says, I cannot afford to have a thought in my head that God isn't thinking about me. I need to think the thoughts that God has about me. I need to say the words that God says about me. I need to believe what God says about me. And nothing else. And you know what the Bible says the church is supposed to do? Not just the church like this building, not this room. The church, the body of Christ. You know what we're supposed to do? The Bible says, Hebrews 10, 25, encourage one another daily. Especially as you see the day approaching, especially as you know Jesus is returning soon, more encouragement. The more you think Jesus is coming back, the more encouragement. Why? Because we have to remind each other who we are. That's not who you are. No, no. You're the daughter of, you're the, daughter of the king. I don't feel like, the, I, know, I know you don't feel like it, but you are. You're the daughter of the king. Wait, I am? She starts sitting up a little bit. Yeah, that's who you, that's who you are. Yeah, right? That's who you are. Oh, I, 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 I forgot who I was. I know. I'm here to encourage you. I'm here to remind you who you are. Can you do the same for me when I forget? Yes. It's called encouragement. That's what the church is called to. We're called to encourage one another, reminding each other who we actually are. The new covenant is no longer written in a book, although we do have the Bible. I'm not discounting the Bible, but it's actually written on our hearts. Do you know how simple it is? Love. Super simple. Jesus himself said it. The whole law is summed up in this word love. Love God, love people. That's it, love. In fact, the Bible says love is the fulfillment of the law. So if you forget your Bible one day and you're out in a situation, just ask. Actually, it's not, I know it's corny, but just ask, what would Jesus do? What would love do? Jesus is love. What would love do right now? And that's probably the right thing to do right then, right there. You just can know because love the love of God, I'm not talking about just humanitarian love, I'm talking about the love of God will tell you, God's love will show you what to do because love is the right answer every single time. It's the right answer every single time. It's the solution to every problem. I don't know what to do about my finances. You need more love. Why? Because if you have more love, you'll know that James 1, 5 is true. If we lack wisdom, let us ask God who gives generously and without making you feel bad. Love doesn't, a lack of love causes you to not believe that verse, but love always believes that verse. Oh, my daddy loves me. He'll give me wisdom if I ask. He'll do it generously and not make me feel bad. Daddy, I need wisdom. I don't know what to do about this. We expect a, a downpour of his affection and his wisdom because, he, we, because of love. See, insecurity makes us pray but not believe we're going to get answered. So people have these radical prayer lives, but they're not radical at all. They're just filled with unbelief. Hours in the prayer room doesn't make you a radical prayer. Faith, trust, belief, persistence should come from faith. I believe you told me to keep praying about this, so I'm going to keep praying. Why? I want you to chop this tree down. The other answer, I gave it to you, prayed once. This time I want you to chop the tree down, son. You got it, Dad. I'm going to chop the tree down. I can't wait. Yep, get the axe. Come on, come pray with me. I pray in the name of Jesus. So break the power of that thing. Okay, yes, God. Thank you, Lord. Did that matter? Absolutely, it mattered. Did you hear me? Yes. It hasn't happened yet? Nope. Don't give up. Keep going. Love allows us to persevere because we know that he loves us. He wouldn't deceive us. He's not lying to us. Something's happening. See, a lack of love caused you to stop praying. Ah, God isn't listening yet. That's all a lack of love. That's what that is. God doesn't love me. He doesn't really love people. He's not really true to his word. So then we stop praying. See, people in love will pray. Why? Because you know that God's listening and he's going to answer you. 
Hello? If we knew how much God loved us, our house of prayer would be full. It would. We're in one of the most unpraying generations in the history of humankind right now. One of the most unpraying generations. Why? I'm not saying that to make you feel better. I'm just, why? Because we don't know the love of God. After all the preaching and all the renewal and all the river, we still don't know the love of God because we don't believe the gospel. It's not just a feeling. You're not going to get it by just going to conference after conference after conference. You've got to believe the gospel that Jesus actually accomplished what he said he did, that the Father is satisfied. Listen. Can I just tell you one of my favorite verses? Okay, you guys all know 1 John 1, 9, right? If we confess our sins, how's it go? He is faithful and just to not only forgive us of our sins, but to do what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can I ask you a question? If you're cleansed from all unrighteousness, how much, how unrighteous are you? Zero. Which means you're totally righteous. Because if you're cleansed from all unrighteousness, then you're righteous, right? Is that not true? So we confess our sins, he forgives them, and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Pretty amazing deal, don't you think? Then it says this, starts out chapter 2, it says this. My little children, I'm writing, this, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I'm not writing, this, I'm not writing 1 John 1, 9 so you'll sin. I'm not writing it to you as an escape clause. I'm writing it so you won't sin. I don't want you to sin. This is what he says. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus has gone from mediator to advocate. What's an advocate do? He argues on our behalf. He pleads on our behalf. He stands and represents us to someone else. We have an advocate with who? With the Father. Now, this is like a little game that God is playing because the Father's not mad at us. The Father's happy with us. But it's like this. The Father is holy, right? No one can stand before, no one can see God and live. No one can stand before God. So I come, Daddy, I come running into his arms as though it were like this. The justice of God would say, what's he doing here? He doesn't really say this because he knows, but he knows the answer. But they, you know, God plays. What's he doing here? And the advocate, Jesus, steps up as my attorney. He has every right to be here because he's fully righteous. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself... Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation means one who takes away wrath. That means that Jesus personally took away every bit of wrath toward me from the Father. The Father has no longer a right to be angry with me. Now, does God get angry at sin? Yes, bear with me. I'm talking about the eternal consequence of anger over sin. Jesus took away the Father's just wrath about my sin. He took it away. He removed it. Why? Because he put it on himself. He himself knows what happened. He was the scapegoat. He was the propitiation. He took away the judgment that I deserved. He literally took it upon himself. So he took what I deserved on himself, so therefore he can be my advocate. He's, he's not just my me. He's my advocate now. He stands before the Father and says, Hey, Father, I took all of Mark's punishment. Every bit of the punishment that he deserves, I took it. So here's what it says. This is amazing. And this isn't universalism. Just listen. He himself, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only. Also for the sins of the whole world. Josh preached last week, he said there's pre-forgiveness in God. I don't know if you can hear that term or not, but he's absolutely right. What that means is, it doesn't mean that there's everyone's saved. It means that God has done all of his heavy lifting. He's done. His part's done. When Jesus said it's finished, it is finished. 
Jesus took away the wrath of the entire world. He took all of it, all sin for all time, for all humanity. It's all been put on Jesus. But if people don't receive Jesus, they get it back. It's, it's they decide, hey, look, I don't want mercy. I don't want grace. I don't want this crazy gospel that's so good. I don't want your love. I don't want your goodness. I don't want your power. I don't want your smile. I don't want your security. I want to be an orphan. I want to be an orphan. I want to be emancipated from you, God. I don't want to be in your, under your rule. I want to go to hell. I want to be away from you. And the only place that you can be away from God is called hell. Hell is the absence of God. Hell wasn't created for human beings. Hell was created for the devil and his demons. It was not created for people, but there are people that choose to go there. It's not God sending people to hell. It's people saying, I don't want to go be with your amazing love and goodness. I want to pout. I want to be by myself. I want to be an orphan. I don't want your gospel. He's like, at the end of their life, he's like, okay, I've done everything I can do. You win. I refuse to take away your free will. You can have it. I tried to warn you. I told you it's not good. There's no love there. There's no light there because God is love and God is light. All the love and all the light stays with me because that's who I am. I can't put myself in hell. Unfortunately, there is one place where I don't, I'm not there. And it's, yeah, you're going to be there. Now that ought to motivate us to want to share the gospel because why would we want anybody, even in ignorance, to go someplace where they literally aren't going to want to be? It's called the preaching of the gospel. The good news. It's called the good news. How many of you know that most of the church doesn't share the good news because they don't believe it's good news? If we were utterly convinced of the good news, we would share it more. It's amazing news. It's amazing news that if I receive the free, if I receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness that I get to reign in life through the one Christ Jesus, I receive and I reign. I haven't done anything yet. I just received. I received tons of grace and the free gift of righteousness. That means that I'm righteous. I'm not righteous. I'm not standing up here because I'm righteous in myself. I'm standing up here because I'm righteous in Jesus Christ. None of us deserve to stand up here. If this platform is your righteousness and my righteousness, nobody gets to be up here. It's always empty for all of eternity because everybody has sinned at some place or another. So nobody gets to, but if, but if we get to stand here because of his righteousness, we can all stand up here because it's a level playing field. Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. He took them all away. And the world is invited in. That's what J Josh meant when he said God's disposition towards the world is not hostility. That's the disposition of the world towards God. God's disposition towards the world is like the father of the prodigal son on the front porch going, I've made all provision. I got the ring. I got the robe. I'm ready to go. Come on. And by the way, other kids, would you mind, um, I know you're playing and having fun, but would you mind going and telling, getting some, getting some other ones to come? I just want to put my love on them. That's why William Booth's vision was so telling when he saw the church. They would get, there was this bay and they would get saved and he would, they were drowning. He would pull them out and he'd put them up on the rocks and, and they would suddenly forget that anyone else was drowning. They'd just lay on the rocks and they'd suntan the whole rest of their lives. And he's like, he's like, no, no, no. Could you take some time and go, there's some other people drowning. Could you go get some of them? That's what evangelism is. It's the church going to tell others that there's amazing news and I'm so excited to be in the family that I just want to have you be in the family because it's better than I thought. But most of the church is living under the law, so we're, always, we're walking in condemnation and shame, so we don't have any good news 
because we don't want anyone to come into what we're experiencing, but we're not experiencing the gospel. We're experiencing a false gospel. It's called the law, which is why we need a better mediator with a better tabernacle and a better covenant. Because we need to understand what the gospel actually is. It's not the old covenant. It's not the old tabernacle. And it's not the old mediator. It's the one mediator for all of eternity who stepped in between us and the Father. And he made a way for us to come fully into the family and have full rights and to sit at the table and to feast. That's why David could say, you've prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. David understood salvation. He got it. That's why the Bible talks about the sure mercies of David, because David got the gospel. As an Old Testament guy, living by faith for a future reality, he understood the gospel. So did Abraham, why he was the father of faith. It was credited to him as righteousness. He believed. That's what he did. He just believed. He believed in the provision of God. So much of the church is scared to actually believe God. It's amazing grace, beloved. It's not just, it's amazing grace. It's amazing grace. It's, it's worthy of a song. <laughs> that ought to be sung all over the world a bunch of times. How sweet the sound. Oh, saved a wretch like I was, is what it should say. I once was lost, but I am found. I was blind, but I see. I see what's going on now. I'm so grateful. Oh, so great a salvation. Hebrews warns us in, I think it's chapter 3 or 6 maybe, it says, how can, we, how can we expect good things if we neglect so great a salvation? So great a salvation. We must pay closer attention, it says in Hebrews 3, to the things we've seen and heard. We need to get smart about this gospel. We need to know the gospel, church. There's a gospel crisis going on in the West. We've got to know the good news so we can live the good news so we actually want to share the good news. 